Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic ministers today. And this is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Today we have our very own Dean of Biblical Studies, Reverend Bobby Kilman. We are so grateful for Brother Kilman and his teaching. And if you have not listened to the previous episode from the Mid-America Revival Conference on the topic of teaching holiness in the 21st century, I invite you to go check that out. Listen to that. Brother Kilman is one of my favorite teachers. And so today we're going to get to Brother Kilman doing a sermon in IBC Chapel entitled The Loss of the Prophetic. But before we get there, I want to let you know, following this episode will be a bonus conversation with Dr. Lyndall Anderson and Brother Draylen Young. Check that out. Without further ado, Brother Bobby Kilman preaching IBC Chapel. I have to I have to lay this out a little bit today. If you'll forgive me, I'm just gonna kind of walk through the text and I'll save my title for a little later. Uh, as I, I begin to uh, turn a corner in this uh, little homily. I, I, love, I love the writings of, of the pastoral epistles. I, I, I often will say in a class, Brother Henderson, when I used to teach pastoral epistles, thank you so much for helping. Uh, but I used to tell them, Brother Henderson, when they walked in, if I, if I told you I had a copy of the Apostle Paul's notes to young preachers to how to succeed in the work of the Lord and how to do what God has called you to uh, do. Uh, how many of you would want to buy it? And all the, of course, all the students raised their hands. And I said, how many of you, I told you, I really had a copy of what the Apostle Paul wrote and said young ministers should do in order to be the people, the ministers, the God-called uh, anointed workers in the kingdom. Would you buy, would you pay $500 or $5,000? And all of them raised their hand. I said, I'm going to raise a bunch of money because I'm just going to go uh, print First Timothy 2, or First and 2 Timothy and Titus, and I'm going to sell it to you for $5,000 a pop. Because this is not just what Paul is writing to his sons in the gospel. It's recorded by inspiration of the Spirit of God so that we can know as ministers in this room how we ought to behave in the house of God. So the Paul says to his son in the gospel, he begins to challenge him and he lists qualifications for things like elders or a bishop or a pastor. Turn to your neighbor and say, those are all the same thing. One describes the role, one gives the title, and one describes the vocation that, that you are to shepherd. And, and he lists these wonderful qualifications that we don't have time to deal with today. But I'll just tell you that they all have to do with character. And then the apostle says there's only one thing that he he does that's different, a skill or a proficiency, if you will allow me to say it that. A function in the office is mentioned, and the Greek word is didaskaton, and it means you have to be apt, you have to be skillful in teaching. Paul says the one thing that you're to be about, Timothy, is primarily disseminating the revealed truth of Scripture. And he gets to chapter 4, and he begins to talk to Timothy. He says, I want to give you the task uh, of what you're supposed to do. I want to give you the time that you're, that you're supposed to do the task in. And I want to give you the tone in which you should deliver these things. So he says, first of all, you should preach the word. 
He says, I'm not going to task you to any other thing yet, uh, Timothy. We can talk about whether or not you're supposed to have meetings and and strategize on how to build buildings and how to have uh, all sorts of other aspects of counseling. I, I know that's a piece of the pastorate. He said, but the number one thing, Timothy, you need to understand is you need to preach the word. Now, I'm not going any further until I get that in your spirit. The number one conviction of your life, preacher, is to stand in the pulpit somewhere and preach the Word of God. The old timers used to tell us not to preach the truth in the pulpit is malpractice in ministry. They used to say things like, you're not an entertainer or a showman or a philosopher. You're a preacher. You're not a celebrity or a magician or a showman. You're not up here to do tricks in the supernatural. Your primary task is, in fact, to preach the Word. Not only did he say to preach the Word, he gave you the time. So he gave you the task, and then he gave you the time. You... You need to preach in season and out of season. I'll just tell you that every time when I came to Indiana Bible College as a young man, and we had the wonderful vice president that I won't name, Brother Tom O'Daniel. Bishop, he would come in and he would go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And when he would start his text, every, every young preacher in the building got nervous because we knew typically what was following. Brother O'Daniel was going to say, now we're going to have all you young preachers get up and preach because you should be instant in season and out of season. And I think that's true. I think if you're a preacher, you ought to have a sermon. <laughs> if I ask you to preach today, I don't think you should go, oh, I got to fast and pray. You should already have in your repertoire. You should already have in your heart and in your mind. You should already have things birthed out of your prayer meeting that you want to say to this generation. But the Apostle Paul's not dealing primarily with that, although it touches that. He's saying instant in season and out of season is when it's popular and when it's not. When it's convenient to preach the word and when it's not convenient to preach the word. When it's advantageous to you to preach the word because you're with conservative people that believe the Bible. Or when it's not convenient and advantageous or good for you politically to preach the word when you're in another context. God's got to have an Apostle Paul stand up on Mars Hill and say, I don't care how popular it is. I don't care if you amen me. I am going to preach the word. The apostle saying, in any conditions, Timothy, you should be ready to preach the word any time, any place to anyone. Let the word of God land with full force on the heart of, your, of the people that hear you. You can't afford to hedge the word of God. But then he says, not only the time, but the tone needs to be authoritative. That's against everything that you're going to hear in our culture today, and I'm carrying a burden for you young ministers of the gospel, and we're going to get to it by the end if the Lord will help me. But that authoritative tone has to be in your voice. You're not up just giving a talk. Tell them you're going to preach. You're not up just sermonizing. Tell them you're going to preach. I'm going to declare the word of the Lord. You need to be, Paul is saying, be insistent and be urgent. He says, with all long suffering. And doctrine, long-suffering, that means to not be rude, but truthful. 
To not be crass, but forthright. To not be belligerent, but be honest. We don't need any more shock jock preachers just trying to stun people with truth. You need somebody to invite them with truth. You need somebody that says, I'm going to do everything I can and all of my weakness and frailty to preach the truth that will sometimes offend, but I don't want to do it in an offensive way. I just want to stand up and peel Bobby Kilman aside. Why? So that maybe somewhere in a congregation, someone can hear the word of the Lord. So not with flattery and pandering and fawning after the praise and attention of people. Don't hedge, don't excuse, don't obfuscate the issues of truth. Reprove, Timothy, which means expose sin. Rebuke, expose the consequences. And exhort, then comfort and encourage. Call and admonish absolutely to that wonderful thing called truth. And the consequences of obeying, which leads to blessing. So I have to, if I'm going to be a preacher, if I'm going to let the Lord use my voice, i got to reprove and rebuke as a preacher and be uncompromising regarding truth. And I'll just tell you, as a 14-year-old kid saying yes to the Lord when I was absolutely terrified, I had to commit to preaching the truth. And I feel like I did that very quickly and understood the implications of that because my mother was a preacher, my father was a preacher, I had a brother and a sister that was a preacher, and I knew the unvarnished reality of what it means when you call yourself a preacher. But then Paul says we need to be long-suffering in approach and always be doctrinal in our content. And I will confess to you it took me longer to understand this, that the preaching of truth is compassion. That the declaring of what truly is in a person's life, Brother Liam, every time an MSA goes out, we got to have preachers that are absolutely convinced that the message we have is the best answer for human condition. It's the only answer for fallen condition, and that is an act of compassion. So why does Paul give this charge to Timothy? By virtue of the... It being the revealed word of God that he gives it to us as ministers. Because he's saying there will one day be a judgment. First of all, you're going to have to give an account of your ministry, sir. You're going to have to give account of your ministry, ma'am. And when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, all that will matter is that you've been found faithful. Not profitable, not full of numbers, but be found faithful. Did you? Preach the word. The second reason Paul gives this charge to his son in the gospel, he wants him to know that there will be opposition. You will face opposition, Timothy, when you preach the word. So I want you to go ahead and get this in your heart and in your spirit. When I leave Indiana Bible College and I stand in the pulpit to preach the word, I will face opposition. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And if Jesus was persecuted, you know that sometimes you're going to be persecuted too. But that's okay. There will be people that will willingly hear the word of God. Some will reject you, but some will accept the message and God will do his work through you. The last reason I believe that Paul gave this charge is in that wonderful little statement he makes to Timothy. He says, you must make foolproof of thy ministry. Why thy ministry? 
you've had me in any class, you know that Brother, Brother Massengill, that the King James translators want them to know that thy, that's a singular in the Greek, and that means we are personally responsible each for our ministry. It's not up to your neighbor to preach the word and make full proof of their ministry. It's not up to your mother and father. I don't care if your dad and your mother was a preacher like mine. I have to own the responsibility of making full proof of my ministry. And what I preach has to be the word of God. I want to try to turn a corner. The uniform teaching of Scripture is that the prophet is a speaker of or, or speaker for God. Uh, and the cautions in the scripture are this, that a preacher or a prophet uh, it, it does not come up with a sermon or a word from the Lord as the product of his own spirit. We have to acknowledge that every time we stand in the pulpit, that what we say comes from a higher source. You need to let this word judge you, not you be in judgment of the word. And those who claim to prophesy and claim to be prophets. But the Bible says prophesy out of their own heart are not prophets. See, I think that's what Paul is trying to warn his son in the gospel about. The true prophets are those who declare the word that the Lord has spoken. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. Now there's a challenge from the Lord. They make you vain. They bring you to emptiness, a lack of substance. They speak a vision of their own heart. And not out of the mouth of the Lord. The first thing you have to acknowledge if you're going to preach the word is that I have to be careful not to make everyone that's listening to my voice empty. That I don't make them profitable. That I can come up and I can say a whole lot of things that will not bless them substantively. Why? Because I'm giving you something not out of the malicious of an evil spirit, but out of the maliciousness of my own human desire and heart. And it's not out of the mouth of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 2. The prophet says, uh, the Lord speaks to the prophet, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy. Not, Not the prophets of Baal, but people that call themselves preachers and are not. And say thou unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, hear ye the word of the Lord. So what is the apostle saying? I I believe he's reflecting the same type of thing that Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying. He's saying, Timothy, you need to make sure you preach the word. It's not what you can come up with to dazzle me in a pulpit. Don't give me your own ideas. Take me to the word of God. Give me a word of faith that I can believe in. It's not in your own reflection or calculation. It's not the product of your own feelings and fears. Hear me. Your own feelings and hopes or even your fears. God has spoken, preached the word. It's able to sharply distinguish 
uh, what's true in the human heart. And we need to then be able as preachers to distinguish between the contents of the voice of God and the voice of my own heart. Don't you pray anything over me out of the impulse of your own human heart. Speak the word of the Lord. Only in this way are we able to speak God's word with authority and confidence. And only in that way, Timothy, can people receive your word with confidence. Because it's not rooted even in the condition of your own heart. The Bible says that the prophets are watchmen and guardians of the people. That's why we preach the word. Because we are watchmen. Primarily in the Old Testament, Brother Gibbs, the, the prophets of the Old Testament were, they, they were to warn the nations. And we don't always want that kind of ministry where we have to warn the people of God, you're going down the wrong path. Because they see the dangers of judgments of approaching a holy God in an unholy way. And so the prophets called to preach the word, declare the word of the Lord. Let me go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. Paul says, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. The Greek verb there, propheteo, means to speak under inspiration. And so Paul is in 1 Corinthians 14 switching from speaking to heaven in a, in a heavenly tongue to primarily speaking to men. And he says these three things are, are closely linked, edification, exhortation, and comfort. Why? Because they build you up, edification. They encourage exhortation, and they console. And so Paul moves a prophecy beyond merely the, the, the re reduction, the ridiculous notion that it's somehow just foretelling, predicting events. It moves it clearly into the category of preaching under the influence of the Spirit. So I, I come to preach to you today what I, the Lord started laying on my heart in, in early part of July. I want to preach to you today on the loss of the prophetic. I, I, I want to I use an illustration. I was listening to a... Um, I was listening to a podcast by Andrew Robertson, a credible historian, if you don't know who he is. And uh, he started a podcast. It's a fascinating little podcast because uh, the impulse of it was, uh, it's called The Art of Statecraft. Uh, Brother Rodenbush, a young man came to Winston Churchill in 1953, a young American, and he asked Churchill for some life advice. He was a politician. He wanted to have an impact. He wanted to be a leader. And so Churchill responded to the young man, study history, study history, for therein are all the secrets of statecraft. What did he mean? He means that when you understand history, you understand the human condition. You can know what you're approaching because when you see what human beings really are, when you see the sweep of history, you can understand the fundamentals of how to change nations. So I want to I ask the question, what, what almost stopped the speech that changed the world? Uh, Peter Robinson was interviewed. He, uh, uh, he runs a great little podcast, if you're not familiar with it, called Uncommon Knowledge. And on, on May 16th uh, of this past year, he, uh, he was interviewed by Andrew Roberts. And, and the title of the podcast is The Art of Writing Ronald Reagan's Speeches. 
What's fascinating is uh, uh, Robinson was involved in writing uh, around 150 speeches uh, for the president. And there were 14 total writers that were involved. And each one of them said we had to read Ronald Reagan and look at film of his speeches so that we could write speeches that, and, and have them delivered in such a way that they were true to who he was. And he said the fascinating thing about all 14 of these speech writers that, was that every one of them was conservative. And we all loved him because he was the voice of conservatism in America. And he asked uh, Andrew Roberts, Brother Turner, he said, I, I think that might sound a little pretentious maybe, and you can tell me how it feels. And, and Andrew Roberts, the historian, immediately grasping uh, what it would mean to write a, a speech that would be in the mouth of Ronald Reagan. He said, no, no, that's an absolute prerequisite for the job. Can I just tell you that if you're going to preach the word, you have to be conservative. You have to believe that there are ideals to conserve in the world. You have to believe that there are some things that are precious and worth protecting. And you ready? And then and only then can you have a message that could be in the mouth of a preacher. So uh, he says, well, then let's talk about the challenge of doing that in America. And, and let's use as a case study the tear down this wall speech. Uh, many of you may not be aware, but uh, there was a time in, in American history when I was, of course, uh, it, 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 the reversal of that happened when I was a, a young man, about 14 years old. But there was a time when East and West Berlin were separated by a wall. Can you give me that picture? The picture at the, of the Berlin Wall. There was a speech that was given that absolutely changed the context of the world. And this wall was torn down. So, so what was that process? I, I want to tell you this story. I was listening to this podcast and I felt challenged by the Lord. The Lord spoke to me multiple times and things that I want to share out of my heart as an older minister to young ministers that are going to leave here and let your voice be used by God. I, I have some challenges that I want to give you. Brother Blake, he said the first issue was the staffing problem or the staffing process. He said uh, the reason that the speech tear down this wall actually made it. He says the chief speech writer would assign the task. And he said, I just happened to be the guy on the docket. And it was assigned, uh, at least in the Reagan administration, to one writer. He said the chief speech writer would then take the speech that you had written, mark it up for change, and then the negotiations on the changes started. He said, and the second level of pressure or changes was sent out to staffing. And a staff secretary of the president would take that speech and would see who needs to vet it, right? So often he said, 12 different offices and a myriad of teams would look at your speech that you had written out of this topic that you would feel would be representative of the voice of the president. He said, and then people in the department would read it and send it back marked up for changes. And he said, as I would lay this speech out, I could see that the di different departments and the different staff would often disagree with each other. And so I just want to remind you that you should never surrender your voice to the hostage of exceptions, acceptance. 
that you should never surrender your sermon to the hostage of applause. Because in every congregation, in every group that you preach in, there are going to be people that agree with you and people that don't agree with you. There are going to be people that want you to change the language and other people that don't want you to change the language. And you're not going to make everybody happy. So you might as well just preach the word of God. You might, If you're going to offend somebody, it might as well not be your personality or your dumb idea of a sermon. It might as well be the word of God. You surrender your call to the boundaries of a bureaucracy and you surrender your voice to every board and every filter that wants to mute the voice of God in your life and you will neuter your ministry. Forgive me for the language. And he said, why negotiate? Why why get into the negotiation? Why, brother, uh, Brother Turner, why push? Why push back against these powerful, uh, these powerful kind of forces that were going to try to shape the speech that changed the world? Brother Alberto, what, what happens is, is, is he says, well, first of all, we were anonymous. You know, as long as you don't worry about your name, you can preach the word. As long as you just see yourself as a servant of the Lord, up preaching the word of God, then you won't be on uh, TikTok and and, 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 and Twitter and and WordShare. Forgive me for that, for all my friends on WordShare. You won't carry, you won't carry a lick about what everybody says about your sermon. You're just there to preach the word. Why? I'm not worried about my name. I'm worried about his name. I'm not worried about my reputation. I'm worried about his reputation. Preach the word. Why push back? you got to get a little pushback in your spirit. That's what I'm trying to preach into you today. That you need to understand preaching is powerful. That God has chosen language as the vehicle to change the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Get over yourself. They're going to call it foolishness. He says, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say in verse 21, for after that, in, that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And that's why the pulpit is always the throne of the word of God. It's not the throne of your personality. It's not the throne of your ministry. It's not the throne of your cleverness. The pulpit is the throne of the word of God. The only thing that should be lifted up in the pulpit is the word. Now you hear me, young preacher. That'll set you free. That'll allow you to preach without fear or favor in season or out of season. Why? Because if you're arguing with me, you're arguing with the word of God. So... Peter Robinson said that in order to write a good speech, all of us speechwriters knew that the language must be vivid. It has to have persuasive, tight arguments. It needs to have consistency of policy. And in the same way, your language must be rich and real. It has to be persuasive. You have to preach truth. And it needs to be consistent with the Word of God. But fascinatingly, he said, Brother Stumbo, he said, but if you're dealing with a bureaucrat, a politician, turn to your neighbor and say, that's not a preacher. Politicians reflect people's views. Preachers shape them. Which do you want to give your life to? 
And so Brother Stumbo, he said, if you're dealing with a politician, he said, what will happen is on the Hill, they know that, you know, you don't even want an argument made in the speech because you can stitch together a coalition of people and they may back something. Uh, Brother Massengill, there's like 50 reasons why. So you don't want to be too combative in the pulpit. Oh, I mean, in the, on, on the Hill. And the same can be true. And this is what I feel challenged to come and talk to you about. When you start worrying about your political reputation other than preaching the word, you've already failed in doing the task that God called you to. You need to go ahead and get on the inside of you. I don't care if I'm ever elected to any position anywhere. I just want to be a preacher of the word of God. I don't care if I'm ever popular in the culture. I'm consumed with the praise of heaven. I'm not worried about the honor of men. I'm worried about hearing my Lord say, well done thou good and faithful servant. fascinating to me that Paul says to his son in the Gospels that Brother Henderson, false teachers wouldn't even, Brother Turner, you're standing up with me. I know you would be too. But, but uh, he says false teachers wouldn't even have a hearing if it wasn't, more, if it wasn't for itching ears in the pews. Oh. So you just need to say, there are going to be itching ears, Brother Roden Bush, that want me to come along and, and scratch them and comfort them and teach, preach them what they want to hear. That's not your job. Go ahead and know that that's the pressure you're going to feel when you step into a church somewhere. When you step into a pulpit, they're going to want to say, don't rock the boat too much. Don't be controversial. Are you going to yield your prophetic voice? Are you going to give up the opportunity to be the voice that God can use to shake a generation back to revival? So Peter Robinson said this powerful little quote. He says, if you're the State Department, almost never. He said, excuse me, I take that back. Never, not once did the State Department strengthen any language. Not once did it take something that was colorful and make it still more vivid. He said, always the bureaucratic mind, always without exception, was to water down, to turn wine into water. He says, if I may use an almost blasphemous image, and that's the threat to preaching, to accommodate the clarity of your voice to the pressures of bureaucracy. I know. I feel it right now just saying that statement. But at the end of the day, I have to say what the Word of God says. I have to remind you, young preacher, that you cannot be consumed. I'm going to say it again until the Lord releases me from not saying it in this sermon. you got to say, I don't care what people in powerful positions think about me. I don't care what anyone thinks of me at the end of the day. I don't judge myself. I don't let others judge me. I have one judge, and that's the Lord. So it was this case study speech of Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's one of the greatest speeches in American history. It changed the world, and it almost never happened. What does that mean, Brother Kilman? He says, I, he says uh, Andrew Roberts says, what happened when you, when you wrote the speech and when you gave, gave, gave it? What was the process between the, between the time you felt challenged to uh, write the speech and the time that President Reagan gave that speech? And, he says, well, I, I went, first of all, to West Berlin to research the speech. He said, and the ranking diplomat on the ground, John Kornblum, all due respect, he said, he was full of ideas about what Ronald Reagan should not say. 
His main argument was, don't make him sound like some anti-communist cowboy. And don't talk about the wall, by the way. They've gotten used to it. He said, so I, I went to the site and I, I heard what the, everybody say, politician. You need to guard the voices that speak into your life. I'm crazy. I don't care. I just, I'm crazy. I, I, I don't care. I, I know that sometimes gets me in trouble, Bishop. But I just don't care. I'm going to say, uh, I have a covenant with truth. I don't know how to tell lies. Well, I do, but I don't know how to tell lies and be a preacher. I'll just, Lord, help me. What does that mean, Brother Kilman? He said, well, I, I went to the site where the president would speak. He said, and I, I flew over the wall in a U.S. Army helicopter. And, and he said, from the air, the wall looked worse than from the inside. Pop that picture up for me again. 27 miles. Two concrete walls. And between each wall was what they call a death strip. Up to 160, 160 yards wide. Hundreds of watchtowers. Miles of anti uh, vehicle trenches and guard dog runs that go up and down and floodlights with tripwire machine guns. He said, when you, when you look at it, it was gruesome. He said, you could see it. And he said, I, I was invited to dinner with some Berliners to chat and I, I asked them about the wall. He said, it was clear that they uh, had quit Brother Thomas talking about it in their everyday life. He said, but if you asked them about it, it was clear that they still hated it. They had not gotten used to it at all. He says, the hostess that was there, uh, Ingeborg L., said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of that wall. So I just want to tell you, young preacher, before you surrender your voice to the bureaucrats, talk to people who are still dealing with sin. Get down on the trenches where somebody's dealing with alcoholism. Get down in the trenches where people are dealing with the real issues of fornication and adultery. Can I be, can I be stronger today? Can I really be prophetic today? You know what it's like, Brother Turner, to deal with people lying and telling your children they got the Holy Ghost, and it takes two months before that girl is ever seeking the Holy Ghost again. You need to not, I don't care what the bureaucracy wants, I gotta tell the truth. And when you're dealing with people trying to get little girls to get the Holy Ghost, you don't want lies, you want truth. Please be seated. He said, what was fascinating about this issue with the speech is the process departed from the norm. I'm going to tell you sometimes the norm of a process can mute your sermon. He said in 1987, they, they wanted to build this speech around the idea, tear down the wall, because he had been there, he had seen. And he said, uh, one day the helicopter had landed on the South Lawn to take the president to Camp David. And he said they were sending over a packet of speeches including the Berlin Wall Address. And, and they say to the secretary, the person that was going to uh, hand them to the president, hey, you know, let's just give them to him now. He can look at them ahead of time. He can get ahead. He's got a lot of speeches coming. And he, he said, we actually, we pulled a fast one on a new staff secretary. He said, because the staff secretary was responsible 
for making sure every speech went through the normal bureaucratic protocols. He said, and, and, and he said he wasn't mean, he just was unfamiliar. And, uh, and he says, he was resistant at first. And he said, no, I, I think this is supposed to go out through staffing first. And he said, then the president walks in and looks at him and says, what do you got for me? He said, and he just handed him the unedited, unvarnished drafts. He said, that only happened in three to four speeches in the whole eight years that he was there. Remember, 150 plus speeches, and only three or four of them, now hear me, was not muted. How many sermons are you going to preach that are not muted by the polls and the public opinion and, and social media feed? When are you going to just turn your voice loose from all of the pressures of bureaucracy? That's what I feel the Lord is challenging you to do. What's fascinating is President Reagan, the most anti-communist leader in the world, because he knew at the end of the day, uh, Brother Malachi, how dangerous communism was. And Reagan knew inside and out the dangers of communi communism. He knew it was the number one threat in the world. And it had to be addressed by his leadership. So when he came back from Camp David, he said in front of the entire staff, singling out the phrase in the speech, tear down this wall as a passage he particularly wanted to deliver. Then he sent the speech out to the staff for review, and it was three weeks until it was delivered. Now catch this. Peter Robinson says, for all three weeks, the National Security Council and the State Department fought the speech. They fought it on the grounds that it was naive. It would raise false expectation. It's going to put Gorbachev in a terrible position because all of the conservatives in Russia are going to say, see, that's what happens when you work with Reagan. Now he's going to pick on you in public and put pressure on you. Okay. Well, let's talk about it. I think it's fascinating. Howard Baker, one of the guys that was listening to the speech, he said it this way. It doesn't feel right. It sounds unpresidential. doesn't sound like a preacher should. You're not polished. It's too raw. It's too plain. Later, Howard Baker said at the, after the delivery of the speech, I have never been so glad about being totally wrong before. I, I remember one of my friends who is pastoring a large influential church who his dad spoke to me. I want to say this carefully because I really love them and they're doing incredible. I'm going to let him tell his own story though. His dad said to me, Brother Kilman, I appreciate your friendship with my son. All five of his mentors walked off into the charismatic movement in one year. And I remember the night my bishop in the Lord, Brother Mooney, was up preaching, thundering away at general conference. And that wonderful young man who's a new pastor struggling with how to lead a church and pull it back to holiness, and he's winning that battle. He said to me, Brother Kilman, he said to my wife, I could listen to Paul Mooney all night. Why? Because the most shocking thing is you don't know who's going to get strength by your voices. You don't know which people are in a good fight just saying, can I find a preacher somewhere at General Conference that will preach some more strength into me that will help me walk back home and understand that the best thing I can do for my congregation is to stand in the word, stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God. The National Security Council and the State Department offered seven alternative drafts. 
And it was on this pretext, he said, or that pretext. But Robinson said, but the passage to tear down the wall was missing from every one. He said, so what they would do is they'd write a new draft and they would have me in and they would read it in front of me. Pressure. That's why you're invited to some lunches. Pressure. (laughs) That's why I need to have a meeting with you, pastor. And they come into your office. Pressure. Go ahead and get used to it. He said, uh, and they would say, are there any concessions you would make? And he would say, no, I want to stick with the original draft. I, I know the president wants to deliver this. I, I know it's an important speech. I, I've been on the ground and I've heard the voices. He said, I was 29 when the speech was written and, and assigned, and I was 30 when it was given. And he said, speech writing was the, in the White House was the first full-time job I'd have. He said, in some way, that's almost appalling to me. Because I, as a 30-year-old man, am staring down the National Security Council. Staring down the State Department. He said, but I thought to myself, I was in Berlin. I saw the wall. He said, it's horrible. And I talked with people who had to live with it. And see, I think that's the same kind of impulse it's got to be in you. I'm no friend to sin. I will never be quiet on sin. I will never hedge on sin. Why? Because I've been in the trenches. I'm going to tell you who gets tired of preaching truth. It's people that are not teaching Bible studies. I'm going to tell you people who want entertainment preaching. It's people that are not reaching the lost. Because when you start reaching people and see the devastation of sin, you're going to say, I've seen the wall. And they're not used to bondage. They're not used to the wall. Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2 verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. See, it's an issue for all young preachers. Let no man despise thee. He says in 1 Timothy 4 12, let no man despise thy youth. I know you're just a 30 year old Peter Robinson the speech that changed the world almost didn't happen, except it was committed into the hands of a 30-year-old who knew he had the confidence of the speaker and you're ready, he could stand and say, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to edit one line of the speech. He said that vivid impact helped me. That evening in Berlin, when I said to those people, I've heard that you've forgotten about the wall. He said, this vivid memory. He said, I have one man who raised his hand and pointed and saying, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about that wall? Well, Brother Kilman, we're beyond preaching separation. Then come to me to California where I know a wonderful man that's wrestling with whether or not his daughter is going to have a... uh, a sexual reassignment surgery. And you're going to realize that preaching on hair and preaching on dress, that frontline issue is what people in the trenches want. Get some strength into my baby girl. Get some strength into her so she's not intimidated and buying in to the lies of corruption in this culture. Well, Brother Kilman, don't you know we're beyond the naivety of a sensuality? There's all these revival in, revivals, Brother Massingale, in history that we need to embrace. Huh? God bless everybody making a step towards truth, but they ain't saved. 
You must be born again of water and spirit. And if you ever get tired of preaching that, you need to go teach some Bible studies again. You need to remember what addiction looks like. You need to, need, you need to see the spiritual bondage in people's lives. And you got to preach them out of pain. Preach them out of bondage. Preach them on the other side to victory. We're past the issue, Brother Kilman, of the sufficiency of Scripture. You will never save people if you're not a preacher. You're not ever going to be smarter than God in your ministry. Remember when Jesus said, cursed be Capernaum. I'm going to go ahead and take a risk here. Kilman, K-I-L-L-M-O-N. I got, I, got a, I got a mug the other day in California, and it said K-I-L-L-M-O-N. It had a whole bunch of sayings. Evidently, my rhetoric in the pulpit is too strong. But go ahead and quote me. But when you look at that essentiality, when you look at the nature of what God wants us to preach, you just have to say, I got to get beyond what people are saying to me about what, what they want me to preach, and I got to just submit my entire voice, my entire life to God. Because Jesus did a bunch of miracles in Capernaum, and they did not accept him. You, you ready? Their revivals sometimes bring miracles. Sometimes it brings rejection. It's not the only way to bring revival. It's a way to bring revival. Don't make that an idol. You ready? Preach the word. Preach the word, and these signs will follow them that believe. See, I can't challenge you to preach the truth and not be willing to say it myself. I lay my whole reputation on the line. I don't care what doors it closes, Bishop, because at the end of the day, I'm just going through those pearly gates. How do you think we feel about bondage? It's like understanding that right now, the state of Indiana in Bloomington, at Indiana University, is erecting a bronze statue of Alfred Kinsey. See, most of you grew up in a wonderful, safe environment. You don't even know who Alfred Kinsey is. But Alfred Kinsey is one of the biggest promoters psychologically of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. He argues for grooming children for pedophilia. And you're erecting a bronze statue? Dude? You're going to tear down other statues? You're going to erect that statue? Remember, every deconstruction always has an agenda to replace. He said, I had encountered, and I'm working towards a close, if he'll come to the music and help me. He said, my problem is that I had encountered what he called, uh, Brother Turner, first order reality. What does he mean by first order reality? I was on the ground. See, that's why I don't think you should get too distant. Too distant. Ugh, how can I say this nice? I just turn to your neighbor and say, it's Brother Kilman. If you're only worried about being a politician, you ready? Just keep your ministry in proximity to what it really means to reach the lost. And if you're really reaching the lost, you're not going to worry about numbers. You're going to worry about souls. Now listen, three, we know 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost. So I'm not against saying 3,000. I am against you lying. Because the truth makes free. He said the fascinating thing is the State Department and the National Security Council made up their opinions by talking to each other. Brother Massey, you got all these 
young preachers talking to each other in meetings, and we're going to really reach the world, and we're going to, I mean, that happened when I was in Bible college, and now the devastating wreck of not only their ministry, guys I went to Bible college with, gals I went to Bible college with, that have wrecked their ministry, chasing after the likes of Mark Driscoll, and, and now all of that's imploded. And we're still the fastest growing thing in the world. I'm going to try to close. See, here's the challenge that I feel. I I love the way Brother Mullins said it when he was visiting IBC. I love Ron Mullins. Anything you can hear from him, get your hands on, you need to listen to. He says, you can seek honor or integrity, but you cannot seek both. Because if you're chasing the honor of people and the praise of people, it will cause you at some level to compromise. Maybe not even compromise, Brother Alberto, just hedge what you preach. To be careful in your tone instead of forthright. And he said, you can end up with men's honor, but not be a person of integrity. Peter Robinson said they were putting so much pressure on him, Brother Turner, because if the young speechwriter who would say to the president, you know, upon mature reflection, President Reagan, maybe that phrase is not good. He said, so they didn't attack President Reagan. They attacked the young speechwriter. There will be people that won't attack me because I'm old and crazy. There are people that don't have conversations with me that I hear they have with you. You just need to say, I, I'm not going to back down. The Secretary of, of State objects again, and they're in Italy, and the deputy, deputy Chief of Staff brings it back to President Reagan and explains that the National Security Council and the, and the, uh, the, Secretary, uh, the, the Department of Secretary has objections to the central passage, this tear down this wall. And they talk about it a while, and then it was fascinating. He said, Ronald Reagan said, now, now I'm the president, aren't I? He said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're at least clear about that. You are. He says, do I get to decide whether that line stays? Yes, sir. It is your decision. He said, well, then it stays in. They all fought the speech. It's fascinating that after President Reagan gave that speech, the Secretary of State, George Schultz, to his credit, catches the eye of the head of the Department of the Speechwriters. And he said, they said he had these laser light blue eyes that could just pin you to the wall. He says he catches his eye and he's coming straight at him. He goes, oh, great. Now I'm going to be grilled by the Secretary of State. And he said three words. You were right. That means serious, he says, serious professionals. Ah, professionals, not preachers. It sounded wrong right up until the moment they heard it. Then it seemed right. And that 155-kilometer concrete wall that went up on August the 13th, 1961, remained there until a speech was given on November the 9th, 1989, by a courageous president written by a young speechwriter who just determined not to let his voice be muted. Stay with me. See, here's what the first world view says. My family's trapped over there, preacher. The applause of crowd is a fickle thing. 
the praise of heaven is forever. So when Jesus comes in at his triumphal entry and all of those voices are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. He's not intimidated by the time it gets to Friday and most of those same voices are saying, crucify. There are voices that pulls movements back. I wish we had time to walk through. I'll just say the United Pentecostal Church history. And I will just tell you that there have been courageous leaders that stood in pulpits and gave keynotes and their prophetic voice in their preaching pulled the movement back to center. But this is what that, this is what that means. Bow your heads with me. Now you're saying, Brother Kilman, I'm not a preacher. You preach every time you sing. When are you going to sing about essentiality? When are you going to sing about holiness? When are you going to sing them out of sin by saying surrender? But that means stuff like this. You've got to resist to run a campaign for status. And I'm going to say it again. Never surrender your voice to the hostage of applause. That's what Paul is saying to his son in the gospel. You got to preach them out of addiction and alcoholism and and adultery. You got to preach them out of the clutches of hell. You got to preach them out of false doctrine and man-made traditions and the lies of religion into the power of heaven. The answer is preach the word, preacher. Amos says it this way in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I I raised up for your sons for prophets. I, I, I have your sons. That's you. There is a desire to be truth declares, to be prophetic in this generation. And I don't merely mean reducing that to saying a word to someone in private. I believe in those things. I'm talking about the clarity of preaching. Because that's the vocation of the prophet. To declare to his generation, to declare to her generation, thus saith the Lord. He said, I raised up of your sons and daughters and of your young men for Nazarites. I I, I have prophets and I have Nazarites in your midst. And is it not even thus, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Just go ahead and break your consecration. Go ahead and just break your dedication. Don't get too serious while you're at Indiana Bible College. And commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. Hell is after your voice. And the speech that changed the world that almost didn't happen rested on the conviction of a young man to say, I know this speech is important. And so here's what I'm saying. I'm asking you to say, Lord, never let me be intimidated by any type of bureaucracy. Never let me be intimidated by any organization or any church or any collection of peers. Help me to always preach the word with clarity because I understand that that's what will bring change. You hear me. That's what will ultimately open doors for you, not close them. Because your generation is looking for a voice. We can't lose the prophetic. We can't lose the power of God's vehicle to change the world. So slip up your hand and just say, God, help me. Listen, it's in Scripture on purpose. Paul wasn't wasting his time. He was writing by the inspiration of God because God knows you're going to feel this pressure. Come on down, surrender your voice. 
Come on down and say whatever you want me to preach, Jesus. Give me the courage. With long suffering, God, I got to get my tone right. But help me to preach doctrine. Help me not to be caught up in fadism and all the pressures of lights, camera, action, and celebrity status and so worried about no no God it's not my preaching that helps the gospel it's the power of the gospel that somehow gets through and my pitiful ability to preach but God you've chosen this not just homily but preaching the word to change the world come on some of you just need to go ahead like I did as a trembling 14 year old preacher you need to go ahead and say God I surrender to the call to preach your word. See, the fears and the pressures, I'm trying to quit today. The fears and the pressures that go with that can sometimes make us go, I, I don't want to preach, Lord. I, I don't, I, I don't want to embrace that, God. I'm too scared of it. I'm, I'm too little. You are too little, but he's big enough to overcome. He is strong when we're weak. Preacher, that's it. Slip up your hand. Say, God, help me, help me, help me never to be overcome by the pressures of politics and the pressures of people. Help me to never surrender my voice to anyone that would mute what you want me to deliver. Then God can say, there's a young man I can trust. There's a young lady I can trust. I got a Timothy in that town. I got a Titus in that town. I got a, I got a young person that understands that if they will preach the word, everything else will follow.